Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. Brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. With me in the studio today is a bloke who's crafted a life out of love for sport. Mick Collis. Welcome to Inspirational Sporting Stories. Yeah, thanks, Duff. It's nice to be here. Obviously, short of people to interview, but it's it's great to be here. Well, we love people with a point of difference, and I think you're definitely that. And normally, when we do these interviews, we sort of start from childhood and build up. But I'm, I was reading your bio, and the fascinating thing about it, I reckon, was Sudoku. Mm. Now, first of all, <laughs> is Sudoku? It's a game. But is it a sport yeah, or it's a pastime? No, it's definitely a sport. It's a sport? Stuff, yeah. <laughs> so tell us about your background in Sudoku. You uh, were the vice captain of the Australian Sudoku team in a tournament in India. Yeah, quite um, frightening to hear that back. But yes, no, because I mean, I always, wanted to, I always wanted to play for Australia as a kid. That was, that was my dream like a lot of kids. And I played a lot of different sports and, and never quite got to the level that I wanted to get. And I remember I was, I was 42. I still had that dream. And I headed up to Brisbane to watch the Bledisloe Cup, which is that rugby test between the Wallabies and the All Blacks. And, and a mate that I was traveling with, who I'd played rugby with for a long time here in Perth, pulled out a book of Sudoku puzzles. And I'd never seen Sudoku. And I said, what's that? And he said, Sudoku. And he explained what it was. And I'd had just the right amount of beers. And I said to him, if, that if we create our own World Sudoku Championships, we could pick ourselves in the Australian team. That was our whole dream for the weekend. We thought we'll just organise this thing, have it at the rugby club, get our pommy mates to play for England, Kiwi mates could play for New Zealand, all get to play for our, our, our country, we get to play for Australia, everybody's happy. So we got back home and I just Googled World Sudoku Championships and I discovered there actually was a thing called a World Sudoku Championships. I thought, who'd, who would have ever even thought there would be such a thing? So I thought I'd try and then find out how do you actually compete for that one. And I, I'd never played Sudoku before, so it was a bit, a bit optimistic and a bit of a long shot. But to cut a long story short... To be selected for your country to compete at the World Championships, you need to be uh, selected and have that selection ratified by your country's member of this thing called the World Puzzle Federation. And I discovered Australia didn't have a member of the World Puzzle Federation, so I applied. I became the Australian member of the World Puzzle Federation, so it was my job to actually pick the Australian team. So we held an Australian Championships down at the OBH on a Sunday afternoon. Only four of us turned up, which was me and my three mates, so we picked ourselves in the Australian team and uh, yeah, I picked myself as vice captain and we headed off to, to India to uh, wear the green and gold at, at the World Sudoku Championship. So what year was this? That was uh, 2008, Olympic year. And uh, the championships were held at the OBH. Was it a spectator sport? Were people interested in what you were doing or were you just sitting quietly in a corner sipping a few beers? No, we just had a, we had a couple of beers and a few bowls of chips. We didn't actually do any puzzles because uh, <laughs> we thought we didn't need to because only four of us had turned up. Would have been interesting if a fifth person had have turned up, but... It was just the four of us. So no, no puzzles were needed to be done. It was just uh, a matter of then just ticking the box officially saying that, well, this, that these are the four people. And um, 
They're the ones. So I submitted the four names to the World Puzzle Federation, got the tick of approval, we booked our flights and went to India. So explain Sudoku to the layman. So it's a puzzle. So it's in most daily newspapers around the world and it's got uh, it's, it's nine rows, nine columns and nine boxes and you've got to... You've got to put the one numbers one to nine in each row, column, and box, but you can't repeat any number in any row, column, or box. So you see the puzzle on the paper. You get certain clues, numbers that are clues. You've got to work out where the other ones fit. I still can't play. I did my first puzzle on the plane on the way to the World Championship. So I, I'm, I might play once a year, if that, because we, we now we play state of origin Sudoku. We get a group of there's about 25 ex rugby players that play State of Origin Sudoku, and that's the only time I do a puzzle is that is that once a year. So, And I'm still no good at it. I don't like the game. It frustrates me, but it uh, yeah, got me to wear the green and gold. So I'll, I, I owe it. I'm indebted to that little sport. So it was basically your idea. How did you end up being the vice captain and not the captain? Well, I thought the guy that went on the plane with me was Mark Skiffington, who pulled out the book of Sudoku puzzles, and he could actually play. So I figured because he could play, he should be the captain. And the other three of us hadn't played. And I thought, yeah, it was my idea. And my wife had played for Australia and was a vice captain at a world championship. So I thought, oh, that'd be nice. So my kids can say that both their parents are vice captains of Australia at a world championship. So I thought, yeah, I'll just pick myself vice captain. <laughs> so how'd you go? Out of the 89 individuals, I came 89th. Well done. And uh, the other guy, Hamish Sutherland, from the Australian team was 88th. His brother, Sandy, was 87th. And Skiffo, one of the great captains, Knox, 83rd place. Oh, jumped a few spots. Jumped a few. He took a couple of Bangladeshi scalps, I think. But <laughs> out of this funny, out of the 84 puzzles on offer, I did three. And so I had four rounds of 45 or, or I couldn't, I just couldn't do one puzzle. Is it fierce? As in what, the competition? Yes. Yeah, like it was, it was incredibly stressful. And like when I opened my first, like you turn your puzzle book over and I open up, saw the first puzzle and I couldn't do it. And I'm thinking, God, I like I was, I was panicking because I'd always wanted to play for Australia and here I was. Like, because I thought when, when they said you may start, I sat back and I thought, you know, I'm actually playing for Australia. It was really nice. We're in our green, green and gold playing uniform. Who were the gun nations? Uh, I think, so the Czech Republic, and again, so what they did, they then tallied the four, you had to have four players from each country to make up a team. So the Czech Republic ended up winning the, the team's event. I think, uh, I think Japan was second, and I think England might have been third. I think the Americans were fourth. In the team's event, Australia, we were 20th out of 20 in the team's event, just have, behind Bangladesh. Have others picked up the baton and run with it since you've uh, you've started this tradition? Yes, or? I think so. The, the one after us was in Philadelphia, and I ended up meeting. Um, so I ended up writing a book called Full uh, Yeah Full Contact Sudoku about the trip, and I got John Eels, who was the former Wallaby captain, was a mutual friend of. Or was a, a, I had a friend who was also a friend of John, so I went through my mate to get to John. And asked John to write the forward, and John ended up writing the forward for it. Loved the story, and he rang me up one day. I met him. I emceed a function here in Perth, and on the way home, my phone's rung, and I didn't know the number. And and I've answered the phone. Hello, Mick. And he goes, "Oh, Mick, it's John Eels." Oh, I was all excited, and he said, "Mate, look, um, I love the story. I'd, I'd love to be a dual international. Can you pick me in the next Australian team?" And I got him, mate. Absolutely. So the next one was in Philadelphia. So we're all planned to take John Eels as part of the Australian team to Philadelphia, and he ended up he couldn't go. So I had, I had some woman, once the book came out and we had a documentary as well, and I got inundated by nutcases who actually love Sudoku saying, when's the next Australian championships, how to make the Australian team. And this one lady from Philadelphia, who was an Australian lady, and at the US Nationals, they get a thousand people turn up and first prize is $10,000 and a spot on the US team. And this lady had 
Australian lady living in Philadelphia had sent me this CV of all these Sudoku competitions she'd been in and where she'd come. She'd come third at the US Nationals and saying, how do I how do I make the Australian team? And I've emailed her back and said, look, I'll put it to the board and I'll let you know how you go. And, and I've emailed her and said, yes, you're, you're in. So I bought her a T-shirt and she competed in Philadelphia. And the year after that was in Hungary. And by this stage, I got a mailing list of about 80 people. So I've done a blanket email. I said, look, the next one's in Hungary. Who wants to go? I had three people come back and said, they'd go. One bloke said, can I take my girlfriend? I said, yep, there's your team before. I bought all them a T-shirt. They went to Hungary. And then I resigned from the World Puzzle Federation after that. And, I, and I'm not sure what has happened since. But what I did, I, I left the World Puzzle Federation and I formed a breakaway league called the World Sudoku League. And I've nominated myself as the global CEO of that World Sudoku League. So that's why we have our state of origin, Sudoku, is is under the banner of the World Sudoku League. And we actually pick an Australian team and play against whatever the touring rugby team is at the time. And uh, we play a Sudoku test match before a rugby test match at some venue around Australia once a year. We might come back to Sudoku a bit later on in the interview, but we'll take a break now. You're listening to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. We're brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEN. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. We're brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. With me in the studio is Mick Collis. I'd call him Sudoku player extraordinaire, but you're probably a Sudoku player trays ordinaire, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but an extraordinary organiser and 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 sports fanatic. Tell us, let's go back to your childhood. Tell us where you grew up and and how your love for sport developed. Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Sydney, so I was, um, lived in when I first got out of hospital as a small child uh, in Wentworthville, which is out in the western suburbs of Sydney. Then sort of over the years, we kind of moved in and ended up around sort of the ride, West Ride, Eastwood kind of area. Um, and, uh, you know, western suburbs of Sydney, you played cricket in summer and you played rugby league in the winter. And that doesn't matter what you were built like, what your abilities were. Uh, that's just what you did it was cricket or rugby league. And, you know, I was, I was built like a one wood as a kid. I had you know, a big head and a long skinny body, but... In winter, rugby league was what it was. So I um, started playing rugby league when I was probably six. And that was with my, my primary school, you know, had, had, a, had a team. And my old man was a league in and his grandfather, or his father, my grandfather had played first grade rugby league for Weston, for Balmain in Sydney. And used to play with a guy called Frank Hyde, who was a very famous rugby league commentator. I remember as a kid listening to Frank Hyde call the rugby league. And and that's that was just what I did. Um, I, I played cricket and I was a, I was a terrible Terrible cricketer, and I felt sorry for my parents having to go and watch me every Saturday playing cricket. But rugby league was kind of—I leaned more towards um, the footy, the winter codes, than the summer codes. And then when I got to uh, thirteen, that was the last year of my school in terms of a Saturday competition, having having rugby league. So under fourteens, I did nothing. And then at the start of year ten, it would have been under fifteens. Um, guy called Matt Parrish, who I was at school with, and his dad was actually the coach of the Western Suburbs rugby league team in Sydney. And that was a massive kid as a kid at school to be at school with a guy whose dad was the, um, you know, the first grade coach of, of the Magpies. And, and Matt was actually, so at, at the Eastwood school that I was at, the Eastwood district was actually a very strong rugby union district, even though I was in at a Catholic school, was in the, you know, a, a rugby league competition. And, and Matt sort of said to me, you know, you know, what are you doing? I said, nothing. He said, why don't you come and play 
rugby union. And that was, you know, for me growing up in a league household, that was like changing religions, going from rugby mm. league to rugby union. And um, old man was, you know, he's, he was a bit, not not against it, but he was thinking, oh, my, what's happened to my kid? He's playing rugby union. And so I started playing rugby union at 15. And my old man, uh, to his credit, throughout my entire career as a, as a not a career, as I called it, my entire years of playing, my old man was always involved as a manager or whatever it might have been of the team. So when I went to rugby union, he um, he came across to, he didn't know anything about the game, but came across as the manager of my under-15s team. And he got on very well with, with the coach and, and he started doing some um, sports trainers courses because he sort of thought, you know, these kids are getting, that was back in the day with the magic bucket and the sponge and he thought there's got to be a better way. So we did some sports trainers courses. He actually ended up having a really nice career as a sports trainer, did a lot of um, Sydney under-16s rep stuff, did some, you know, with the Waratahs for a while. Um, so he did the Australian Navy. So he had, had a great career out of his rugby as well. But and I, I was playing rugby and because I was tall back in those days, there was no lifting in line out. So they used to pick tall guys for the, for the second row, which was where I was playing. And actually, you know, I did okay because I was tall and, made a couple of junior rep teams and that, that sort of fostered that, um, that dream of thinking I'm going to one day play for the Wallabies because I made the, the Sydney under 16s team. And I think, you know, I'm on the way. And then I played some college football, sort of New South Wales colleges and Australian colleges. And then I got the opportunity then to, I was playing first grade Colts at, uh, at Eastwood, which is like an under twenties thing. And I remember in, in Colts, I got named the, there was the Brian Palmer shield for the most outstanding Colt. And the, the guy that, was the runner up that year was a guy called Richard Harry and Richard Harry went on to play 37 test matches for Australia. And I was never heard of from again. So I kind of peaked, I peaked a little bit too early in my rugby career. And then I got invited to come across to Perth. Um, a guy called Alan Morton, who was a former Wallaby winger was the head of human movement over here. And, um, and I'd, I'd done phys ed teaching in Sydney and I was playing, he was in Sydney for a year on sabbatical. I played Colts with his son. And you talk about these sliding door moments. He, he just said, what are you doing when you finish your study? And I said, oh, nothing. He said, well, come to Perth, play rugby and get your degree over here. So I come over to Perth and um, played rugby in, in, in WA. And I was playing first grade over here, which I wouldn't have been doing in, in Sydney. So I kind of liked saying I was playing first grade. And then ended up, you know, representing Western Australia uh, at the senior level, which was, that was a nice moment for me. And that was probably the highest achievement that I had as a rugby player. And, um, and then that was, yeah, that was basically played some lower grades after that. And then my uh, career just, yeah, basically fizzled out when I was early thirties, I suppose it would have been. Rugby union back in those days was very much an amateur sport, wasn't it? Yeah, even, yeah, even going up through the levels. Yeah. So yeah, there was no money uh, at all. And, and, and rugby league was the one that was played professionally and, and tended to come from lower social demographics because players needed to play for money to, to make livings. Yeah. And that's the reason that, that all break away in the, in the start way back in, I think 1908, whatever it was back in Sydney, because guys playing rugby and were getting injured and if they couldn't work, well, they weren't earning money. So that's what the, the rugby league formed. And that's um, where guys would be paid to play on the weekend, slightly different game. But if you got injured, you know, you were covered with your costs, but it's funny. I think rugby was in Perth before AFL and mm. it was, I think it was one of the, it was the biggest game back at the time, but then, um, because he had a lot of people from the East Coast coming across, but then, yeah, AFL came in and, and then obviously it's over, almost overtaken the world. But, yeah, so for a time, so most a lot of the rugby clubs in, um, I think I'm involved with uni, they've probably been around about 90, 90 years. So it's been, this, the comp's been pretty consistent for a long time here. But, yeah, in my career, you know, no no money at all. Even some mates I was playing with in Sydney, um, a guy called Marty Roebuck, who came down from Bathurst and lived with my family in Sydney, he, when he first played for the Wallabies, it was amateur and he was a physio, but he'd actually quit his job just to try and make the Wallabies. And then I remember Phil Kearns, 
who was uh, went away with the Wallabies, and he's because players are always talking about they're not paid enough money now. And he said when he was first picked for the Wallabies, he thought, "How good's this? I'm I'm on tour. I'm with my mates. I'm playing for Australia. I've got a whole new stack of gear, and I'm getting thirty bucks a day. How good is this?" Yeah. And, uh, and I thought it was uh, that was just that that was how we were brought up. It was all about the honour. The money never had anything to do with it. Now uh, the honour's still there, but that that money that's you know, that's a big driver. That's why guys, you know, they go, they'd rather go and play in Japan than try and stick it out here in Super Rugby to try and make the Wallabies. And that's, for me, rugby has gone backwards since professionalism has come in just because it is it is now just driven by the dollar. What's the toughest sport? I'm an Aussie rules guy, and we always look at the two rugby coaches and go, wow, they hit pretty hard in both of them. What's the what's the toughest sport? Out of those three, in that, in that physical side, I reckon they're – I think the – like I watch AFL, I reckon I would have been a good AFL player. And because I, I look at the stats of these kids coming out now, when they you know leave school and they're 195 centimeters and you know 75 kilos and and they can run. And that that was me. Like I was tall, I I could run all day. Um, I wasn't I wasn't that heavy, but I just I never never played Aussie rules. It just wasn't an option for me. And that, that you know I, I kind of think I wish I'd have been brought up in it. I was never built to play rugby league or union because I just don't have the size for it. But I think I could have been a good AFL player. But I think I look at those guys and some of those, the high-impact collisions of, in AFL, I, I find are frightening. There was that mm. one, um, McManus, again, it was one of that derby, McManus ran McManus were a punda, yeah. Like, yeah. That was frightening for me because you just you don't see that in rugby. Because in, in League and Union, you, you know where the hits are coming from because yeah. it's in front of you and you can see it coming. Whereas AFL, like, oh, you know, uh, what do you call a hip and shoulder in, in AFL in League and Union, that's called a cheap shot because the guy doesn't see it coming. So it's it's different what people think is, is tough. And, you know, I look at – I think rugby league for one-on-one, that's the most brutal sport because those guys yeah, – I'd agree with that. Is, like in rugby union, you try to recycle the ball. So you, you go into contact and they basically – I mean, they hit but they slay down because, you know, you're going to try and recycle the ball. Whereas league, it's, it's just stopping someone. And mm. you've got two big human beings running at the same pace, just running into each other. The brutality of rugby league, that for me, that's the toughest sport. We'll take a break. You're listening to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. Brought to you by Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEN. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. Brought to you by Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. With me on Inspirational Sporting Stories today is Mick Collis. Bloke who's made a life for himself out of playing sport as well as he could and talking about it and writing about it. Mick, tell us about the media side of what you've done during your life. How did that come about? How did that involve? When did the, the writing and, and commentary part of it start? So I remember I wrote my first sports article when I was 18 and I had some mates um, that Marty Roebuck I spoke about came down from Bathurst with another guy called Tony Muller and Dan Gorry. And, um, and they moved down to Sydney. They'd all been to school at Stanley's in Bathurst, playing rugby in Sydney. And my sister was actually going out with, with Tony Muller at the time. And so I wrote and they'd all made um, – I think Tony had made the Australian under 21s and they're all and playing first grade. So I, was, I just did a story for the local Bathurst country newspaper called the Southwest Times. And um, so I, I... Do you know my first newspaper was the Southwest Times in Bunbury? Oh, was it? <laughs> there you go. So I, I just wrote this article as an 18-year-old about 
about these Stanis guys that because I, I kind of I've always had a not a knack, but I, 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 if I think that something might be interesting, I know where to pitch it. So I thought, well, that was a story about three local Bathurst kids that are now playing rugby in Sydney. So I thought that was a bit of an angle. So I did this story, which I assume I must have just typed it up, put it in an envelope and sent it off. And then uh, and I had relatives in Bathurst and they saw the story and they've posted the Southwest Times back down to me. So that was my first article. And I thought oh, I wouldn't mind, you know, doing doing journalism as I, when I left school. So I applied I did my first year, I did Macquarie University in Sydney. I, I did, it was a Bachelor of Arts in Communications. And the first year, I just hated it because I didn't do any, there was no writing involved. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to be here. So I left that after the first year and, and I, I didn't know what to do. And my mate who I'd been to school with said, oh, you know, come up and do phys ed. And I'd always liked sports. So I went and did phys ed teaching. And then when I got to Perth over here, I started, I was um, working at the Woodside Health and Fitness Centre and I started writing some, because I had a degree in phys ed now, I started writing some articles for health and sport and fitness magazine. So I started writing rugby stories for the Australian Rugby News. Um, I did a feature article for Inside Sport. I was writing for some triathlon magazines. So I thought, oh, maybe I might get back in and do journalism. So I applied to do journalism at Curtin. I got knocked back. And then I applied again the second year and I got in. That was the, pretty much the big course in WA back in those yeah, days, wasn't one it? one out of Curtin, course, absolutely. Yeah. So, so I did, it was a postgraduate diploma in English with a journalism major. So I was out there doing that and it was good because I had, I'd done my degree. I had a, it was a one year um, full-time course, I think it was from memory or, yeah, I think it was one year full-time, but it was all just the core subjects. So there was none of the philosophy stuff. It was all just, you know, TV, radio or, or print journalism subject. So, and the radio I was doing out at 6NR at the time, and a fellow by the name of Peter Vlahos was out at 6NR, and he was my, you had to do a radio unit and you had to do it in the radio with the um, the news department. And I said to the lecturer, look, I don't, I'm not really interested in news, but I like sport. Can I do it with sport? And they said, well, you have to ask 6NR. So it was, Pete was the black ass. I said, look, can I do this? He said, yeah, mate, no worries. He said, I'll give you an A. I said, all right, terrific, Pete. So <laughs> I started doing um, sports stuff there. Uh, under Pete, and then Ireland came out to play, and I think the rugby WA used to do a, uh, a a half an hour sports segment on a Sunday afternoon, on on six an hour about rugby. So I sort of approached them and said, "Look, you know, I'm happy, happy to do this with a mate." So I ended up running that little show. Then there was a show called The Locker Room on Channel Thirty One. So I I did a rugby segment on that, and then in '94 Ireland came out to play Western Australia at the Wacker, and I said to Pete, "Could we do a?" a live call of this game. And he said, yeah, it doesn't see why not. So we organized all that. I remember rang him on the day and I said, oh, Pete, have you got any tips? And he said, what do you mean? I said, I've never called a game before. Um, any tips about calling a game of footy? And he just gave me a few pointers. And so we called that game of rugby and I just enjoyed that. It was, it was good fun. And then I just kind of got a bit lucky from there. Um, we did a few more games on, on six and R. Then I think, um, Pete ended up moving to, um, to another station here. So I rang him up and said, look, I, I'd like to still do some work. So he got me in to do some stuff in there and um, just doing around the grounds. I was doing around the grounds for TUE when the Western Reds were playing. So I just I just managed to just find little niches where no one else was doing things. And then when um, the Rugby World Cup was here in 2003, um, I was at 6PR at the time and no one knew rugby. So I became the rugby expert. And then when the Western Force started here, they got on board as, a, as the um, as the host or the supporting broadcaster. So they wanted to call the game. So I ended up, I called all the Western Force games for them. And then I did a bit of stuff with the ABC after that. So I've just, I've always just managed to find opportunities through rugby because for my advantage, it was a minor sport here in Western Australia. Most guys growing up here 
want to call Aussie rules, but I wanted to call rugby and there weren't, you know, didn't have a whole lot of competition. So it worked in my favor and then ended up now I do some stuff with Stan Sport. I'm on the, the sideline for the Western Force stuff with Stan Sport and then call the match the round of the local rugby comp, which has started this year on, on Stan Sport. And then also ended up doing, cause my wife was playing water polo, um, ended up calling a, a water polo world cup here in 2003, done some international stuff on, uh, for water polo and now they, with live streaming now I'm doing some national league games, um, for water polo. So yeah, water polo and rugby have been the two games that have let me, uh, loose here with broadcasting and it's been great fun. As you know, it's, you know, calling sports, it's a nice way to, you get a good seat and you get a free ticket in. What were the basic fundamentals Pete Vlahos pointed you at when you did your first game? Oh, I can't remember what Pete said, but I remember George Grilizic sat me down when I started doing it. George was a great basic was, fundamentals guy. He was fantastic. And he, yeah. and he said to, he said that I, I wasn't calling it. I was having a conversation and I had, and he pulled out, I remember he wrote it down. He took me to the boardroom at 6BR and he wrote down the entire word for word, the call he'd done. Ben Johnson's the ben 1988 sprint. Yeah. And he, he wrote that word for word for me. And he showed it to me and he said, you, 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 he said, I, I, I tell a conversation, I don't call it. So basically I had to cut out all the, the fluff that I was doing in between it. And it was, it's basically who's got the ball and, and not all the, the, the fluffy stuff. So that was, that was the main thing that he told me was that, that sharpness, I reckon was what George, George told me, but obviously, you know, radio is different to TV because radio, you don't want to tell them too much about what they're seeing. Whereas radio, you've got to explain you know, where they are and, and what's going on. And I actually, I think I over talk. So I, I prefer radio more than TV because I think I, um, I tend to not overcall. It's something I'd try and, you know, pull back on, but I, I love describing in detail, whereas TV, you don't really have to describe in quite as much detail as you do with radio. I actually saw George's notes on that race call. I think it was at the Sydney Olympics and George and John McGrath and I all went out to lunch in, um, he was down in Darling Harbour somewhere and George carried this notebook around with him yep. and, and had, you know, sort of, it was, it was fact finding and, and that sort of thing. It was, mm. it was p- part of his, his, his research and he, yeah, he had that, um, the, the, the sentences written down with the full stops yeah. in between the pauses, yeah, those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. And he said the, the pausation was so important and, uh, and that, yeah, that was, and it was, look, it was great for me just to sit and, and have him, when he just wrote that out, I thought well, that's, that was unbelievable. Yeah. Just still to this day knew word for word, what he said in that call. Well, it was only about 9.79 yeah, seconds, I think. It wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a lot. And um, just uh, aided by some substances, but 9.79 <laughs> seconds nonetheless. Yeah. So, so that was great. And and I think, and you know, radio's a bit more forgiving because uh, if you're watching a TV game, and I do it myself, if a commentator gets a name wrong on TV, you think, oh, that's not his name. Whereas on radio, they're just trusting you. So they hope you get it right. You better now? Better call on now? Oh, look, I think, I think so. Um, I think I'm more aware of what, what to do and what not to do. And I think that awareness, I think has made me a bit better. I, I like to try and pride myself on the accuracy. So I'd spend a lot of time, you know, trying to, you know, if I get the team list beforehand, trying to actually know who they are. It's hard, you know, if you do a, a club rugby game and you have it, it's the first game of the season and you don't know any of the players. It's, it's, it's hard trying to keep track of who everyone is, but, but yeah, I, you know, I think I, I think I do okay at it. Yeah, I think I do okay at it. Rugby union would be a challenging game to call, I'd imagine, because you've almost got to take the listener or the watcher through the gears because the game can change it, gears very quickly. Yeah, and it, it? and it can keep and it can and it, sometimes it can go. You can do one of it's one of the bad things about rugby. They do this pick and drive. It's called where you got a guy picks it up from the back and it runs a meter and stops and then they do it again. You might have twenty four times where that's happening, 
and it's trying to it's trying to actually you can't get too excited because you might be too excited for about five minutes, but you can't get too bored, even though you're bored thinking this is going anywhere. So I find trying to find that balance between excitement and uh, not getting overexcited. If they're a meter out and you think, you know, they're going to score, but they're going to score for the next, you're still saying that for the next two minutes, they're still going to score and they still haven't scored yet. So that's, I find, yeah, that's a pretty tough game and rugby, a bad game of rugby, a bad, boring game of rugby is a really tough thing to call and try and keep people interested in. We'll take a break. We'll come back and talk about your writing and your views on uh, modern sport generally. We're with Mick Collis. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffy on SENWA. We're brought to you by Bauer and Doday. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEN. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. Brought to you by Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Mick Collis with me on Inspiring Sports Stories today. Mick, the other side to you is your writing. And you're a great heartfelt writer. I think you have the ability to put your heart into your writing and a bit of yourself in your writing, which is a great gift for a writer. Tell us about uh, um, what, how you go about that. And uh, you, I think your love of sport shines through, I think, in the way you write. Yeah, I mean, most stuff I write is um, is sports-related. I'm pretty uh, – you know, happy to win. I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to other affairs of the world, but I, I do like sport and I just like the emotion of sport. And, you know, example I always give to people when, when I had my, my first kid, like that was, you know, that was, it was a, a good moment and I was, I was pretty happy with it. But I remember when Sterling Mortlock took an intercept against the All Blacks in the semi-final of 2003 Rugby World Cup, I was out of my chair and I was screaming and I didn't get that excited when we found out we were pregnant or, you know, the kid came out and people always say, oh, you know, having a kid's the greatest moment in the world. And I think, well, you know, is it, it, it is good, <laughs> but you look at a sport, at a sports crowd. You're offending and, a lot of women in I this know, program. No, I know, no, I, I know. And I'm probably offending a lot of fathers as well, but I, I watch a sports crowd at an event and the emotion that you get, that you see in those fans, nothing else conjures those same emotions as, as sport. And, you know, you look at young kids during that soccer world cup, you know, there were kids that were in tears because their team had been knocked out. Yeah. Like it's extraordinary. And, you know, grown men and women in tears, or, or if your team wins, they're hugging the person next door to you, um, just the celebrations. And, and there's, for me, there's nothing like sport in terms of that, that emotional level. And, and I think I, you know, when I watch a, um, start of a rugby test match. I love, I love when they do the anthem and especially in the European countries and just, you've got these massive human beings, 120 kilos and, and grown men just crying as they sing their anthem because mm. it just means so much to them. And, and I just, that's the side of sport that I love the most. So when I, when I do write stuff, that's what's in my head. I try to, I try to, you know, get that out of me in whatever thing that I, it is that I'm writing about. Poetry. Yeah, and I think, and I think the some po- people call you the poem guy. Yeah, and I think the poetry is, I reckon, a good example of that. So I, I tend to write poems about, and again, look, I, I'm I'm no classical poet. I write stories that that rhyme, and I think a poem has to rhyme. I could be wrong. There'll be people arguing about that as well. But and I think again, from an, an emotional point of view, I think poetry is a really great medium to to get across 
an emotional story. And I, I don't know why it is, whether it's the rhythm of the words and the rhyming, I don't know, but I just find it a really good medium. And I remember when I wrote, I generally write sports stories. And I've written stories about like that, that game in 2003 when the um, Wallabies beat the All Blacks. I wrote a, there's that wonderful Dorothea McKellar poem called um, My Country that's got, you know, I love a sunburned country. When when the Wallabies beat the All Blacks, I wrote a poem called um, My Kiwi and it was, I love a quiet Kiwi. And it was all about, you know, because the Kiwis had gone quiet because the Wallabies had beaten them. And, and you know, if there's a, a great moment in sport, I'll, I'll feel inspired to to write a poem about that moment. I remember I wrote one when the Western Force were being kicked out of Super Rugby and they played their last game at HBF Stadium back in 2017, I think it was. And it was Matt Hodgson who'd been there from game one. It was the Western Force's last game. It was Matt Hodgson's last game. They'd been kicked out of Super Rugby and the uh, the Western Force just put on a clinic and just absolutely smashed the Waratahs who were the, the guys that were trying to get him kicked out anyway. So all, all, And I remember it was up in the Gold Coast um, at a speaking function and I kept sneaking out of the function to watch this game on TV and I just couldn't believe how well the force were playing and, and all the planets were aligned for Matt Hodgson's last game and he you know, he ended up kicking a, a penalty goal to the last point of the game and I, I wrote the poem on the way home on the plane and it was just called Cinderella Story and it was just about the joy I felt in watching that game and, and Matt Hodgson and the Western Force beating the Waratahs and then, you know, opposite end of the scale when um, young Phil Hughes got hit in the head and, and I, you know, I thought I was injured, but I thought he'd recover. And I remember on a rowing machine in the gym and I heard on the radio news that Phil Hughes had died and that just floored me. So I ended up writing a poem just, you know, about, about Phil Hughes. And then the same thing with Shane Warne when, when Warney passed, um, I, you know, I, like all Australians, I just, I loved Warney and he was the sort of bloke that was going to live forever. And all of a sudden Shane Warne's died. So I ended up, I wrote a poem, um, basically about, Shane Warne and, you know, all about how, you know, I never saw Don Bradman bat or saw Dawn Fraser swim, but I, you know, I was lucky enough to see Shane Warne bowl. And I, I, so yeah, I just find the, for me, if I've got, if I feel emotional about something, I, I find poetry in particular is a, a great way for me to express that feeling. Or, you know, often it's just for myself, but if it's, if it's okay, like the Shane Warne mum's okay. I knew a lot of people like Shane Warne, so I stuck that out on social media and a few people like that, which is nice, but I, I don't do it for accolade. I just did it because it was something as a way for me to express, I guess, my grief about Shane Warne. Let's talk about where sport's at in general. We spoke a bit off air about the the demise of the force and obviously they're, they're back now. And, and we've spoken a little bit about how rugby union, you felt, was a better game before professionalism came in. Are the force going to be okay? Do you think is rugby union okay in Western Australia? Look, I'm I'm worried about the game in Australia in general. Uh, I think AFL is such a it's such a all encompassing beast, and it's like I don't know, it's like this big um, blob of goo that's just it's like you drop it and it's just slowly just taking over everything in its path. And it's I'm even in Sydney, you know, when I was growing up in Sydney at the big private schools, say Joey's would have a, you know, the, the first, the seconds, the thirds, right down to the K's and the under 15s would have an A's through to the Z's. There was no AFL. Now the 15s might go A, B and C. And then there's the same with AFL and the same with soccer. So those real strongholds of, of rugby and the traditional strongholds of, of rugby, they're not there anymore. Um, I know the junior clubs that I was playing for, there were, I think there was five in the district that I was in. There's none now. Uh, Eastwood, which was one of the biggest clubs that I played for, they've sold their ground. They're moving out to um, out to Castle Hill. 
of course, that catchment area, no one plays rugby in Sydney there anymore. So the, the numbers in general for the code uh, are concerning. The Wallabies need to win. The last 20 years, the Wallabies have been terrible and the administration's been terrible and there's no money, so they've ignored the grassroots. So I think Western Australia, the support that, like the Sea of Blue, the Western Australian rugby fans are the best fans in the country. Um, the growth, I believe, in Western Australia is the strongest out of all the other states. So rugby in, in WA, I'm, I'm quite confident of. But the game itself, I'm I'm worried about player numbers and look. Eddie Jones has now taken over as the as the new Wallabies coach, and I think he'll be great because he does believe in the grassroots. And even the Wallabies, you know, they came across last year to Perth, and what they used to do, they if they had a game on the Saturday, they'd come across the weekend before, and they'd spend all week in Perth. They'd have open training sessions. They'd send players out to schools, out to clubs. Uh, the coach would be around, and the whole community—they'd be in the in the on the um, radio, TV, newspapers. The whole community would know they were here. They'd been at Forest Place signing autographs. Kids could meet their heroes. Last year, they came across on the Thursday night. They had a closed training session Friday, played Saturday, and went home. So no one knew they were even here. Eddie Jones was here with the England team, and Eddie's going, "Where are the Wallabies?" And he, and Eddie knows that. If you're an Australian team, you are the flagship team. You've got to get out there. You've got to. Make, I remember when I was 15, I got presented a um, a pennant at a competition by a guy called Gary Pearce, who was a Wallaby, and he was the first Wallaby I met. And I remember that 40 years down the track that mm. I met Gary Pearce, the Wallabies. So there's been a whole era of kids that have missed out on meeting those players, and then they're the kids that are going to go home and say, oh, "Dad, you know, I met." You know, Lottie Takiri, can we go and watch him play on the weekend? They'd have to go, yeah, sure. But if the kid now doesn't get to meet these players, there's no engagement, there's no connection, and you don't care, you're not going to support a team you don't care about. So that's what the Wallabies and, and rugby needs to get people back caring about the game because if people don't care, they're not, going to, they're not going to go and watch. We seem to be getting closer to the Kiwis every now and again. We've had a couple of wins over them, albeit on our, our soil. Is the gap narrowing, do you think, between the All Blacks and the Wallabies? At times I think it is, and at times I think it isn't. I think... Uh, they they just seem they've got the advantage, even though it's a small country. That's that is their sport. The, the, they get the first choice. Athletes, that's so it. You know, yeah. if you're if you're a kid growing up in New Zealand, you want to play for the All Blacks. Brad Thorne, who's probably the most successful footballer of all time, you know, played state of origin rugby league, played for Queensland in rugby league, played for Australia in rugby league. He played. He won Super Rugby titles in rugby union. He played for the All Blacks in rugby union when he was playing for the Kangaroos, the Australian rugby league team. Apparently he was on camp and, and he's the guy he was rooming with said, oh, you know, how good is this? Isn't this the ultimate? And he said, no, it's not. You know, I want to play for the All Blacks. So here's a guy that was playing rugby league for Australia, but he still just wanted to play for the All Blacks. So he left a rugby league career to go black, to go back to New Zealand, to work his way through the grades to Super Rugby for the honour of that jersey and that All Black jersey. So the All Blacks have got that advantage. Every good kid in New Zealand wants to play for the All Blacks, whereas here, every good kid is being chased by Aussie rules, by rugby league with the checkbook and then rugby union with the offer of, you know, you can travel the world. So our talent is is split into three, whereas the All Blacks have just got the depth, you know, and depth is so important. You know, our number 10, which is such a key spot in rugby union, we're, st we're still banking on Quade Cooper being fit for the World Cup, who's going to be 35 at the time. The All Blacks have probably got six good number 10s aged, you know, under 28. So we just don't have the depth that the All Blacks have got. So every now and then, yes, we, we do get close. Um, I think Eddie Jones will make a big difference and I think we'll catch the All Blacks. We might even catch them this year, but I think overall just um, just that depth that they've got just makes them just so strong. And, you know, yes, we get close, but, 
if I was a betting man, I'd be putting your money on uh, the Wallabies and, and mine on the All Blacks. One last one. I love the passion with which you speak about not just your own sport, but sport in general. When you look back at your life, you wanted to be a player, but you didn't quite get there. Is there much you'd change about your life, though? Oh, look, mate, I'd get everything. I'd get everything. I think it was Kirk Douglas once said I'd swap, who won a couple of Oscars. He said I'd I'd swap everything for one Test cap, and on I would. I would love to have played for Australia. That's the whole. The whole. I mean, the whole thing about Sudoku. Like I, I really felt, and I, you know, I was, I was in the Australian team. And yes, it was Sudoku, but we don't mention that. Just saying, you know, I played for Australia, and I was incredibly proud the fact that I got to represent my country. But I would have, I would have loved to have been able to. Like, you know, as a kid to walk out, I remember I went to the SCG one day and ran onto the ground in the days when you're allowed to without being fined and banned. And Dougie Walters was just walking off. And I remember patting Doug Walters on the back as he walked off the SCG. And I just thought, how good would that be to, to walk out there? And as a cricketer, especially, you know, if you're the opening batsman, not that Dougie was, but to walk out MCG Boxing Day test, just you and your mate in front of 90,000 people, there would be... There would be nothing like it. So I, I think what I've done, yes, I've been very happy with, and I wouldn't swap what I've done because I've loved every experience that I've had, but I would swap every one of those experiences for just that one moment of, of actually walking out to either sing the anthem in uh, at Twickenham or to walk onto the MCG with a cricket bat just and have so many people just cheering you. You know, that's that's the boyhood dream, which still is. It's well past, but um, I would have loved to have done it. Mick Collis, thank you very much for joining us on Inspiring Sports Stories. You've been listening to Mick Collis and Mark Duffield on SENWA. Inspiring Sports Stories has been brought to you by Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.